0: I was in the height of my career and had just had our daughter. She was just one year old. And I learned that I had multiple myeloma, which is a blood cancer, um, like leukemia and lymphoma are. And more importantly, I learned that it was, you know, 100% fatal, that patients die within three years with multiple myeloma. And that was the death sentence I was given.
1: From ABC, it's No Limits.
0: I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and
1: each week we're talking to the most influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode of No Limits, how one woman turned a death sentence into an opportunity to change the world of medicine and beat the odds. Kathy Juisty, welcome to No Limits. Thank you. It's so great to be here. I'm thrilled to have you here. You have a really fascinating story. You're the founder of the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation. Grew up in Bluebell, Pennsylvania. Yes. One of four siblings. Correct. A twin. Identical. Identical. <laughs> a real twin, as my husband would say, because you're identical. He's an identical twin as well. You ended up studying biology. I did. And then you went and your first job, was it your first job at Merck? Yes. Or one of the early jobs? Right out was of college, Merck? I went right to. Right out Merck. of college, and what were you doing at Merck?
0: I started in sales. So it's an interesting story where I had um, initially been going to medical school, that was my plan. And then um, spoke to my father about it, who was a physician, and he felt that I would be much stronger in business. Why? And he thought I was too impatient to be a doctor, and he also thought it was so unbelievably bureaucratic that um, I would get frustrated by it. It is a regret um, for me, but I did go on and... um, Decided that I would take a year and work in sales and business at Merck and I loved it. I did love it and got moved into headquarters um, on the marketing side and ended up going on to business school after that. And I was very fortunate to have done a number of really great jobs before I actually ended up starting the MMRF. So by the time I became an entrepreneur, I felt comfortable starting my own business because I had taken the right rotations.
1: I wanna to get to some of those jobs, but I think what stands out obviously in your story is that about twenty years ago you're basically handed a death sentence.
0: Right, right. Um it was in nineteen ninety six. I was thirty seven years old. I was in the height of my career and had just had our daughter, she was just one year old and you know, out of the blue, completely unexpected, I learned that I had multiple myeloma, which is A blood cancer, um, like leukemia and lymphoma, are and more importantly, I learned that it was, you know, 100% fatal. That patients die within three years with multiple myeloma, and that was the death sentence I was given.
1: What did you think when you heard this?
0: Initially, I think you know anybody who's 37 that you know is told that you're going to die within three years with this you know cancer that had so little support. Your initial reaction is always going to be shock. Like how did this just happen to me? I feel okay. But I'm, I'm really surprised looking back now on how quickly I started to study my disease mm. and to learn everything I could. And there was no internet back then. So I can still remember being sprawled on the floor of Borders Bookstore with Harrison's internal medicine turned open and looking at the prognosis and thinking, oh my God, this is really, really bad. Like there's nothing good going on in this disease. And I kept moving and thinking I need to get a first opinion, second opinion, third opinion, study every abstract, learn whatever I possibly can. And then it didn't really take me that long to realize that if I wanted to just extend my life, even think about extending my life so I might be there for my daughter longer, I had to have a new strategy. And that that really became the start of the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation.
1: Wow. So a lot of people would have, I'm not sure that they would have had that mentality being handed that
0: prognosis it is interesting i think um when you get a death sentence but you go in every morning to lift your one-year-old up out of a crib and you're looking at them and they don't know anything's wrong with you and you see their smile and you see how much they love you and need you there's something about that that says i want to live long enough that she remembers me that she remembers how much I loved her. And honestly, that became my inspiration. And later on, when I was fortunate enough to have a son, and now I had, you know, these two little ones, I think I was somewhat unstoppable. I really wanted to be there for them every step of the way. And you know, surprisingly, it's 20 years later, I think it's still what drives me. Um, You know, that and wanting to help as many patients as I possibly can who are in similar situations.
1: I can see you're still getting emotional looking back on that moment in life.
0: Yeah, it was, it was a really tough time, I think, because there was no gray area. You know, when somebody looks you in the eye and says, It's three years, and then as a pharmaceutical executive, I'm now studying the pipelines, and I know what it takes to get a new drug to market. Right. Uh, There was no point in my time where I thought, oh, well, this is going to be easy to beat. I I really was prepared to get my life in order. Um, And so I think the reason I'm, you know, it's so emotional for me is because I've lived such an amazing life, and I've seen so many things, none of which I've ever taken for granted.
1: It's a great lesson and a great reminder to all of us to live every single day. Okay. Not only were you living every single day to the fullest, but you were taking action. What steps did you take to set up the foundation and how long from that moment of, oh my goodness, I have this disease that I may have never even heard of. Had you heard of it at that moment when, when they talked to you about it?
0: When I was diagnosed with, this, uh, with multiple myeloma, I had never heard of it. And then when the diagnosis was, um, really given to me, you know, formally with, this is how much time you have, I called my mom. And it turned out my grandfather had multiple myeloma. Um, So she was more familiar with it. He had tragically died in a fire. So we never discussed it Mm. in our family. And that's why I didn't know the history. But now I tell everybody, know your history in your family, know everything that you possibly can.
1: So from that moment of of learning, you have multiple myeloma to the foundation. How did it all come together?
0: Well, ironically, it was only a matter of months before I started taking action. But the first thing I did was I I looked at the landscape of nonprofits. And I knew that I wanted to fund research. I knew that supporting research in this field would make all of the difference. And when I looked at the landscape, I realized that 90% of nonprofits back then weren't raising over a million dollars. And I thought to myself, how do you fund research if you're not raising the dollars that are needed? Research is expensive. It's expensive. And even as I went and started benchmarking those various organizations, I realized that very few had business plans, never mind scientific plans. Mm. And very few, very few were focused on research. A lot well of yeah,
1: but not necessarily getting the job done.
0: Exactly. Doing beautiful work, you know, in in policy or awareness, advocacy, yep. awareness, you know, even more, you know, holding the hands of patients who so desperately need it, but my background came from drug development. Yeah. I wanted to find new treatments. So The beauty of of having started the foundation and being a patient was I was able to see firsthand where the obstacles were. Mm -hmm. And so I said to myself, boy, there are not many scientists working in this field. I wonder why. And, of course, it was lack of funds means lack of grants means you have to raise the money to attract scientists to the field. So we did that. And then I realized firsthand that even though the scientists were being funded, there was no easy way for them to share their knowledge, to collaborate so I thought to myself, we really need to build the collaborative models. And that became the start of our tissue bank, one of the first foundations to ever have our own tissue bank, which now has thousands and thousands of samples for scientists to share. And then I said why aren't we getting more drugs into this disease? And it's because it was an orphan disease, and we had to make it much more attractive by building our own clinical network.
1: Now, explain what an orphan disease
0: is. So an uncommon disease, and typically it means that it's not necessarily a space where a pharmaceutical company wants to play. Because there aren't enough patients, so they don't have the scale, so they don't make the money on it. Correct. Correct. And I think many diseases have now shown that pharmaceutical companies can do quite well with orphan diseases. Um, But- Back then, it was really a challenge. So when we built our clinical network, we said, okay, we now know the best scientists, the centers, and we got everybody to work together to do these phase one and two trials. You know, now today, we've done over 70 trials and 30 different drugs, at least 30, and 10 drugs have now been approved in myeloma. So together, I mean, with everybody, we've, you know, tripled the lifespan of our patients.
1: And you, your actual story, you ended up getting a stem cell transplant from your sister. I did, yes. How did that all come together?
0: The interesting thing in multiple myeloma is there's a a phase called smoldering, which means your immune system is trying to hold the cancer in check. And back then, we didn't know what you did. Like It was hard to know the limit of smoldering versus active disease. So as I did my you know, second, third, fourth opinions, there is not a lot of consensus on what I should do. Some people would say, go do this tr- the transplant right away. Um, a few others said, wait. And you know, even back then, it, it makes me realize how much the decision can be placed on the patient. So um, I did all my research, and I decided to wait, which was a really good move, because in the meantime, the foundation was continuing to do its work, and we were starting to focus in the world of drug development. So by the time I actually was doing a stem cell transplant, when my disease truly became active and there was no denying it, that was 2005. And by that time, a new drug had come onto the market and was being evaluated called Velcade. So I was one of the first patients ever on Revlimid, Velcade, and Dex, which was a a triplet, which even today has turned out to be the standard of care. And the fact that I knew that and those drugs were available to me, I do think helped to extend my life.
1: More No Limits on the way, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of today's episode, Blue Apron.
2: Incredible ingredients make incredible meals. That's why Blue Apron partners with a community of over 150 artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, sustainable fisheries, and responsible ranchers across the United States. Thanks to these partnerships, Blue Apron is able to deliver fresh, seasonal, perfectly portioned ingredients with easy-to-follow recipes right to your door for under $10 per meal. Log in each week to select the recipes you want to cook or let Blue Apron choose based on your food preferences. With Blue Apron, there's no weekly commitment, so you get the deliveries when you want them. Rediscover how fun cooking can be while enjoying specialty ingredients and exploring new flavors and cuisines. When you cook with Blue Apron, you bring the best ingredients to your table while developing a sustainable food system for future generations. Join the growing community of Blue Apron home chefs today and get your first three Blue Apron meals free, plus free shipping at blueapron.com slash no limits. That's blueapron.com slash no limits. Blue Apron, a better way to cook.
1: you brought up a point that I think is really interesting about health and disease. And it was this point about how when you have been diagnosed with something, you talk to a doctor. As an outsider looking in at a doctors, you assume they're just going to say, okay, here's what you need to do. You do A, B, C, and D, and then you have a whatever 80% chance of the outcome being this. And the reality is a lot of the time, it's not that straightforward. The doctor will lay out 12 different options, and then you as this patient has to figure it out.
0: Right. And I think that's why I'm this huge fan of generating as much data as we possibly can and everybody sharing their data so you can have one pool right. of data. Because I, I do see this world for cancer patients. It's not here today, but hopefully it will get here, which is you could literally go into the data set And say to yourself, I am female, I am this age, I have this certain genetic um, abnormality, Mm -hmm. and be able to punch that information in and sit with your community oncologist and say, based on that information, that data, and what we've learned from patients before you, we think the best path forward is this one. And I think that's what we're all trying to get to, but it does require the ability to have these beautiful data sets that are genomically based, that are clinically based, and longitudinal. And that's hard data to get. Why is that? Because if you um, look at the expense of doing that or the how the incentives are today, it's never, ever bad intent from a doctor. It's not that at all. It's just that if you're at an academic center... You do have to publish, and you do have to do that to get promoted. So data becomes gold in an academic center. In addition... Even if you're in New York, you know, Memorial Sloan, Kettering, and Mount Sinai, and other centers, they all are looking for patients. They are a business. So data is really important to them, too. So when data is that critical, trying to get people to share their data sets can become a challenge. So what we found in multiple myeloma was one of the hardest things we did, and we started it five years ago, was to build our compass data set where we decided by investing $40 million that we needed to raise, we would sequence the genomes of at least 1,000 patients from the moment of diagnosis before they'd been treated and then continue to follow those patients through their journey so that when they relapse, we would sequence them again. So the MMRF now has one of the largest genomic data sets in the world. But more importantly... Anybody who worked with us on that study had to agree to share the data in the public domain. So any scientist in the world can see our beautiful, pristine data set. It has generated many, many hypotheses, like three drugs are likely better than two. Transplant may be better than not. And now the point is we have to take those hypotheses and drive them to the clinic so that every patient can benefit. That's the importance of data. Is not developing just the abstracts and publications, which are important, but actually taking these hypotheses and making them into something critically important to change the life of a patient. Kudos to you for
1: making that effort.
0: You know, we recently talked to Christy Turlington about
1: her foundation, Every Mother Counts, and for her it was a personal experience she went through but she also just kept seeing the same issue over and over again and she wasn't really sure where to begin or how to start and i i think that's something that a lot of people run into they want to make a difference in the world Mm -hmm. they have a mission but a lot of the time people just
0: don't know where to start Mm -hmm. because it feels too big right so i i do think that happens quite a bit and i um always say to people that when they get stuck in that spot, because I, I do think if I was going to give advice to anybody, if there's something you love, something that fascinates you, something you're passionate about, you should do it, and you should do it now. Don't wait, because you never know what life is going to bring to you. So an example of this that I would give is when I decided to take the position recently up at Harvard Business School under an endowment from Robert and Jonathan Kraft who wanted somebody to come up and look across all cancers and be able to share best practices. When I got up there, there was not a business plan. They asked me to write At it. Harvard business At School. Harvard Business School. At Harvard Business School. That's they, surprising. And it's, but it's
1: actually, <laughs> Do they not take their own classes? No, they do. But, here's <laughs> but the they beauty. gave you the ownership, which is great.
0: They did. And here's the beauty of it. I think that... What Robert and Jonathan crafted was so innovative and amazing, and I think the dean understood this, was they said, science is exploding. And it it really is. I mean, sequencing, immunotherapy, science is exploding. And Robert felt that one of the reasons he couldn't save his own wife, who had ovarian cancer, was that the business was not keeping pace with the science.
1: When you say the business isn't keeping up with the science, that basically means what to you?
0: The issue you run into in cancer research and even in healthcare is the ecosystem is so huge. So the great thing that we had in the world of multiple myeloma was it was one cancer. So as I started to build out this end-to-end system in precision medicine and multiple myeloma, I was able to do it by saying, I'm going to work with the academic centers first. Now I'm going to bring in the pharmaceutical companies and biotech firms. Now I need to bring in the community oncologists because they're starting to treat these patients. I need to understand FDA and NIH. Now I need to understand the payers. How do they want to help us pay for these drugs? And of course, the patient is always at the center. Try to keep this entire ecosystem together And then to understand where's the sweet spot that we all can rally around Mm -hmm. and what are the incentives to drive each of us there. The incentives may be different, but if we can all agree it's critically important, then we can get you there.
1: If you could change one thing right now in that world of healthcare and medicine that you think would make the biggest impact, what would that
0: change be? Patients would know the importance of their own data to them and to finding cures. What I often say is patients are on the critical path to finding a cure. They don't know. If you actually go to the right center and you can get the most basic testing done, even basic genomic testing done, you will now know more about your disease just enough That if a new clinical trial opens or a new drug comes on the market or something exciting happens, at least you'll know enough about you to make a difference in your life. It it really could change everything for you. In addition, if we can take your data as a patient of one and put it in context with hundreds and thousands of other patients, that's where we find new targets and how we find new drugs and how we find cures. Makes all the difference in the world.
1: What for you has been the toughest lesson along the way?
0: Oh, I would say the toughest lesson is it changes really hard, you know in the healthcare system um it's it's a system that's been around you know for a hundred years, and you're trying to help people to say um." Everybody in this system came into healthcare for really good reason. They came into it because they care about people and they want to make a difference. And when the incentives don't align, it's frustrating for everybody. So I think the hardest part is bringing that ecosystem together. And you may not be able to change the incentives, but you can put your own incentives on top of them and try to motivate everybody to do something different, something innovative, something that will change patients' lives.
1: How do you think of that as a founder? Because in what you're saying – I really appreciate and respect the idea of building on top of it. Where do you, how do you even think of the problem?
0: Well, I think you, you see the problem firsthand. You see where the system is broken. There are places where you can actually perhaps go in and change the system. But I do find that people will watch how you're changing it. You know, what you're doing that looks more entrepreneurial. And then they might feel more comfortable. And they start to change themselves.
1: How do you think of yourself as a manager and a leader?
0: Well, I would say that ever since I got the diagnosis of multiple myeloma, it changes you. I really believed I was going to die within those three years. There was nothing, there was no reason to believe I wouldn't. And so when I had to develop the MMRF, I think I became much bolder in what I wanted to do. People might say to me, well, Kathy, if you go down that path or you say that, you know, the Mayo Clinic or Sloan or Dana-Farber might get mad at you. And I would think to myself, first of all, I hope I'm the epitome of professionalism. But even if not, I am not. I may not be here. so So I had every right to be bold. The other issue was I became much more decisive. I had no time to waste. And I wasn't going to have a lot of information in front of me. So I can make decisions, even today, much, much faster. And I am super urgent. Because I back then I only had three years, and I had to get it all done in today's world, I think I continue to be urgent because, as I said, you know, I'm the place where patients call when they're out of options, and that rings true for me every single day. There's not a day that goes by that I'm not talking with somebody who may be losing their life, and that does you know keep the urgency and I think the resilience there.
1: How do you recommend? Uh, people listening right now apply that mentality if they're not faced because it's we're told a lot of things life is short not that anyone doesn't hear that all the time not that anyone isn't aware of that we see examples of that all the time and yet there is that safety and security thing that comes into play when you're an ambitious person you don't want to undermine all of the work that you've put in.
0: Right, and I think it becomes really important for the leadership and the cultures that we develop. I think what you have to be able to say to people is it's okay to make mistakes because you can reset. You know, if you keep living in a culture where you take a certain program and you keep pushing that same program over and over again or events and it just looks the same over and over again, you want your team to come in and disrupt it. Yeah. You just do. And you have to say to them, if it fails, it's okay. We'll just reset next time. But that really comes from the leadership.
1: Such a, I think about this all the time, the work environments that I've been in that have been positive versus the ones that haven't. And I think the ones that haven't, the through line has always been the leadership was operating from a place of fear. They were afraid. They were trying to hold on to whatever they had. They were fearful of trying to disrupt or experiment or try new things. And by playing it so safe, they made a terrible culture for a okay. lot of the people who are working.
0: That's correct. And I think that's true, too. Like, even for me as a founder of the MMRF, you know, it's, you know, it's your baby, right? But there are points and times you just say to everybody, we developed that business plan for a clinical network, you know, a number of years ago. It's perfectly fine to shake it up. If somebody wants to shake it up, let's do it. Because the world is changing so fast. The science is changing so fast. The needs are changing. And we have to change with that. We want to be entrepreneurial at the MMRF. We really do.
1: I ask everybody this last question. Worst advice you have received in your career?
0: The worst advice I actually received, um, ironically, was from my father. I was enrolled in medical school. I was really excited to go. And... um, He told me that he didn't think I should go. And it's not that he didn't have a right to give me his opinion. He did. It's just that I think today, you know, with so much time having gone by, I can't imagine having a dream and having somebody tell you why you shouldn't do it. And so I think that's the part that bothered me. I certainly ended up on a great career path, and I learned a lot. But having two children now that have their own dreams... I guess for me, I have to believe that I want them to know that whatever their passion is, whatever it is that they really, really want to do, I'm 100% behind them.
1: They're very lucky that you're their mom. If you were to go back to that moment when your dad said, don't do this, and have a conversation with him, and have that conversation go differently, what would you say?
0: I think, number one, I would ask him why he wasn't trusting my instinct. And was it that he didn't have faith in me? And could we think of another path forward? I think I would have had that discussion with him. You know, unfortunately, I didn't have that kind of relationship with my father to be able to pull that off. And I do have regrets, not at all about my life, but um, wondering whether that would have been something I really should have done and might have done well.
1: I want to, before we go, this is a different kind of conversation than we typically have on No Limits. And I love that you were here. And I think it's also the kind of conversation where I want to use the opportunity for people who are patients right now who are going through any kind of medical concern. What are the best resources for people who are feeling lost right now?
0: Well, if you are a cancer patient and you are struggling, the first thing I would say is... Find a foundation that focuses on your specific cancer and work with them because odds are they know every doctor in the space, they know where the research is going, and they can be an absolutely tremendous resource to you. The other groups I tend to really watch in the space are obviously the NIH, which, you know, they have a great website for cancer patients. Another group is ASCO. The American Society of Clinical Oncology has another educational resource and the American Society of Hematology. All of these groups have amazing medical meetings, and one of the tricks I always say to the patients is, you know, for me, there was no internet back when I was diagnosed, but in today's world, you literally can go in, watch these medical meetings, and you can see who's speaking, who's writing the abstracts, and you can learn so much in terms of who are the leaders in the space, and you might be able to get to their centers or their trials, which could save your life.
1: And for those who want to help, how do you differentiate between the groups that are more advocacy approach versus research-based approach?
0: That is a really tricky one. And I have to say, when I started working at the CRAFT initiative, I had to really build that out. It's a hard thing to do. You have to go to their individual websites and literally look in and say, OK, based on the website, do I feel like they're doing you know advocacy or research? Another good way to do it is to go on to a group like GuideStar and see who's the largest group in the space and then who looks to be spending a significant money on research. And it really will help you to understand what foundation could be good for you. GuideStar. Mm
1: -hmm. Kathy Juisty, thank you so much for joining me on No Limits. Thank you. Now it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur, where we feature one of the members of our No Limits community who's building their own business, pursuing a passion. This week's No Limits Entrepreneur was nominated by No Limits listener, Olivia So. Daniela Pearson comes from Jacksonville, Florida. She's from a family of entrepreneurs. Her parents have their own business, and she says, growing up, Her parents inspired her and her twin sister to go out and create their own thing. She recently graduated from Boston University, where in college she started the Newsette. She was a sophomore at the time. Now it has more than 200,000 daily readers in over 100 countries. She started this thing in college. She studied business and had a concentration in entrepreneurship, and she thought of the idea for the Newsette because she always loved reading style, pop culture, and beauty trends in magazines, but she didn't have the time when she was in college to find all of that information, so she decided, why not put it all in one place and share it, which became the Newsette. She's the founder and CEO of this daily email newsletter, which is focused on busy, career-focused, and style-minded women. Oh, and by the way, she sent out the first newsletter, her very first one, the day she had the idea. And even though it wasn't perfect, she thought, well, this is a way to work harder and make it even better. She recently moved her company headquarters to an office right here in New York in the Flatiron with 14 members. So congratulations, Daniela Pearson. Your story is awesome. Thank you so much, Olivia So, for recommending Daniela as the No Limits Entrepreneur. And remember, if you want to submit yourself or someone you know to be the No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, let us know. You can email me at no limits podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of No Limits. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review. It really does help to spread the word. And you can follow along with us behind the scenes on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat at Rebecca Jarvis. And join the conversation using the hashtag No Limits. Quite original, I know. And thanks so much to the team here at ABC who makes this happen week after week. Taylor Dunn, Michelle Bancardo, Annie Osakwe, Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Hecht, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones here at ABC Radio. Have a great week, everyone. Take care. Today's episode of No Limits was brought to you by Blue Apron.
2: Incredible ingredients make incredible meals. That's why Blue Apron partners with a community of over 150 artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, sustainable fisheries, and responsible ranchers across the United States. Thanks to these partnerships, Blue Apron is able to deliver fresh, seasonal, perfectly portioned ingredients with easy-to-follow recipes right to your door for under $10 per meal. Log in each week to select the recipes you want to cook or let Blue Apron choose based on your food preferences. With Blue Apron, there's no weekly commitment, so you get the deliveries when you want them. Rediscover how fun cooking can be while enjoying specialty ingredients and exploring new flavors and cuisines. When you cook with Blue Apron, you bring the best ingredients to your table while developing a sustainable food system for future generations. Join the growing community of Blue Apron home chefs today and get your first three Blue Apron meals free, plus free shipping at blueapron.com slash nolimits. That's blueapron.com slash nolimits. Blue Apron, a better way to cook.
1: Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer.